0: Hello, uh, hello to everybody online as well. My name is Tom um, and I'm one of the occasional preachers. Um, It was actually meant to be Lynn preaching tonight, but she um, found some excuse why she couldn't do it. And so unfortunately, you've got me tonight. Um, So yeah, so uh, uh, let's think about that passage. Um, Firstly, just a question. What what are you afraid of? Uh, Perhaps it's spiders or like me, mice. Heights, germs. Um, Recently I came across an unusual phobia, trypophobia, the fear of objects with small holes, like you get in a honeycomb, sunflowers or sponges. But probably the most common and deepest fear is the fear of death. When I was young, I used to have a recurring nightmare about death. I can't honestly remember if I was asleep or awake, but I remember thinking it through really rationally and realising that if I were to die, that would be it. Full stop. The end. I would disappear into some kind of black hole forever, along with everybody else. Who I was and everything I had done, everything I would do, would completely disappear and be completely meaningless because nothing would last Not even the knowledge of my existence. I remember mulling this over as a sort of angst teenager and feeling really scared and alone. I suppose, as someone who did not have a Christian faith at the time, I was simply coming to terms with my finite existence and what that means the absence of hope beyond the grave. Fortunately, Today's passage speaks directly to this fear of death, declaring the Christian hope in eternal life with God forever. The young Thessalonian church who Paul was writing to had received the gospel with such conviction and urgency that they firmly believed that Jesus was going to return imminently and they weren't really expecting anyone to die before that happened. But Jesus hadn't returned and some of their Christian brothers and sisters had already died So they were afraid about what was going to happen to them. Paul was aware of this because Timothy had visited the Thessalonian community quite recently. And he wanted to reassure them that those who had already died will indeed be raised with Christ. When I became a Christian, I stopped having nihilistic nightmares because I now know that death is not the end. I don't know exactly what heaven will be like and how it will come to pass, but I know that I will be with God forever. Death and the fear of death can have such a powerful hold over us if we're not careful. So it's important that we remind ourselves that we have been set free from its grip because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is a foundational Christian belief and a source of hope for all Christians. And so we will be with the Lord forever, it states at the end of chapter 4. Therefore encourage one another with these words. What an amazing promise. And that's only the first part of today's reading. At the start of chapter 5 in verse 2, Paul goes on to talk about Jesus' second coming as the day of the Lord. And as I was thinking about this sermon, this phrase really struck me, and I wanted to find out more about what it meant. So this is what I want to focus on today, because I think it helps enlarge our understanding of Christian hope beyond the promise of eternal life, important and life-changing as that is. And a lot of what I'm going to say is from a series of podcasts on the Bible Project website, which I strongly recommend This concept of the day of the Lord runs right through the Bible. It refers to the idea that a day is coming, a day of final judgment, when God will defeat evil once and for all and redeem and restore all of creation to the way it was intended to be. But it's also the idea that God is active in history, confronting evil. According to the Bible's authors, There are particular moments in history when God intervenes and overturns corrupt and oppressive regimes, pointing towards the final day of the Lord. It's a bit like looking at a large mountain from a distance, which towers over the landscape. This is the day of the Lord with a capital D, the final day of judgment. But if you were to climb a mountain like this, you will find there are usually foothills along the way. Days of the Lord with a small D. Lesser summits en route to the ultimate destination. And I want to take us into these foothills, picking out three historical events to show how this concept of the Day of the Lord is developed and evolves throughout the Old and New Testaments. Firstly, we have the liberation of God's people, Israel, from Egypt in about 1500 BC. You know the story well. Having been welcomed into Egypt under the protection of Joseph, The Jewish people grew in numbers and then became a threat to the new Pharaoh, who enslaves them and exploits them to build his empire and to glorify himself and his nation. But God hears their cry. And he calls Moses to set his people free. Egypt's evil empire is brought to its knees and its mighty army, chariots and all, are drowned in the Red Sea. This is referred to in the book of Exodus as the day when God frees his people from the oppression of Egypt. And Jews, of course, still celebrate this today, every Passover. Several centuries later, the people of Israel have settled in the Promised Land, and the 12 tribes have been brought together under King David in around 1000 BC, and he passes on his kingdom to his son, Solomon asks God for wisdom and builds a temple. So far, so good. But then Solomon decides to build an even bigger palace for himself, using slave labour from Lebanon. He enlists a huge army to protect his growing wealth and takes on hundreds of wives and concubines. The oppressed becomes the oppressor. Israel becomes the new Egypt. And then the prophets like Amos, Jeremiah and Joel come along and they're sent to warn Israel that the day of the Lord is coming. And of course God's judgment does eventually fall on Israel when uh, when Israel is invaded, first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. And God's own people is sent into exile in about 600 BC, though always with the promise that one day the kingdom of Israel will be restored. See how the concept of the day of the Lord has evolved. No longer is this about God rescuing his people from an external oppressor, but it's about God judging the evil within. Every person, every nation's tendency to exalt themselves above God, gradually redefining what is good and what is evil to suit their own ends at the expense of others. What's also noteworthy in the many references to the day of the Lord is that the human evil being confronted is as much to do with collective evil, corrupt systems and practices, as it is to do with individual sins or failings. We see this clearly in this passage from Malachi. and many others like it, where God condemns individual sins such as sorcery and adultery. But also collective sins such as the oppression of workers, widows, orphans, and refugees. Wind the clock forward, and the Jewish nation has returned from exile, but is now under the rule of yet another oppressive foreign empire, Rome. And God's people are crying out for another day of the Lord when God will rescue them once again. Enter Jesus, the Son of God and long-awaited Messiah. But Jesus' real enemy is not the Roman Empire, but the forces of evil itself. Jesus is tempted by Satan in the desert with a promise of power. But he says no, refusing to participate in Satan's schemes and plans. And by refusing to give in to evil and conquering death, evil's most potent weapon against us, Jesus shows that evil and death has no hold on him. And no hold on us. Again we see this concept of the day of the Lord being expanded further. No longer is it limited to God coming to save his chosen people Israel. Jesus has come to redeem and restore the whole of creation. Furthermore Jesus doesn't come to overcome evil and human corruption with plagues or with brute military force but with sacrificial love, by giving up his own life for our sake. Jesus shows us that most powerful weapons against evil are not physical weapons, but spiritual ones. Which Paul talks about in verse 8, chapter 5 of today's passage. The breastplate of faith and love and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Jesus' victory points towards the final day of the Lord with a capital D, when God's plan for creation will be fully realised. If you look up the many biblical references to the day of the Lord, there are two core themes running through them all, judgement and redemption, accompanied by lots of vivid imagery that's mirrored throughout the Old and New Testaments and culminating with John's vision in Revelation After an almighty spiritual battle between the forces of good and evil, in which God judges and crushes Satan and destroys everything that is evil in this world, he then ushers in the kingdom of God in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is among the people, and he will dwell with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is the view from the top of the mountain, the heavenly perspective on the ultimate day of the Lord, when God has the final word And the presence and consequences of sin are wiped out for good. This is what we have to look forward to. For the Thessalonians, the day of the Lord was an encouragement to remain vigilant and faithful to God through a period of severe persecution. Rather than criticising the church for their anxiety about those who had recently died, Paul lifts them beyond their immediate trials to focus on the prize that awaits but what does the day of the Lord mean for us today? Two things I want to highlight. Firstly, I believe that a biblical understanding of the day of the Lord gives us a much broader understanding of Christian hope. Too often, I think we think of Christian, of the gospel or the good news in narrow, individualistic terms. I am a sinner, but through Christ, my sins have been forgiven, so that by grace I am not condemned And will live eternally with God. Which is true of course. But the full biblical conception of the day of the Lord is much bigger than this. For God promises to redeem the whole of creation. Putting an end to evil and corrupt empires. Systems and practices that blight our world today. As they did in ancient biblical times. It's not difficult as uh, Phil was praying about at the moment to see the effects of evil and corruption all around us. Putin's regime, like Pharaoh's Egypt, is using brute force to oppress another people, with seemingly no limit to the evil that he and his generals are willing to inflict on Ukraine for the sake of glorifying himself and Russia. And like under Solomon, we see the impact of corrupted systems within our own nation, The abuse of power by our own leaders, the failure to grasp the urgency of climate change and the growing number of people needing to use food banks. The rich and powerful get richer and more powerful whilst the poor get poorer. Fortunately, the Bible shows us that God cares deeply about systematic injustice. The gospel or good news that we are called to share and live out with others is not just about the forgiveness of individual sins. It's also about dealing with everything that is wrong with our society so that we can live in right relationship with each other and with God. And I think people are crying out for justice and hope, for a fairer and more just society without leaders who seem incapable of not being corrupted by power and authority. So this is a timely and welcome message for us to share with others. That the state of the world is not as God intended it to be, and that one day he will put an end to all human injustice. Justice will roll like a river, in the words of Isaiah. In the meantime, and this is my second point, we shouldn't just be sitting around waiting passively for the day of the Lord when God will fix the world for us. Like the Thessalonians, we are to be ready for it to come like a thief in the night. Before Christmas, Lynn and I were staying with her parents uh, on a very exclusive private road in Epsom, where the residents were literally preparing for a thief in the night, with gated homes, CCTV cameras galore, and a WhatsApp group for neighbours to report suspicious behaviours. When something is important to people, they go to great lengths to make sure they are well prepared. Uh, And by the way, this CCTV image is actually a photograph that uh, my son and I staged as a joke uh, in my parents-in-law's home to give them a bit of a fright while they were away on holiday. Um, The thief on the right is me. So Paul is warning us to be awake and alert, confronting evil and injustice wherever we see it around us. A more complete understanding of the day of the Lord deepens our understanding of what it means to live a holy life that pleases God. What does that mean in practice? just want to give two quick examples that I've come across as I started preparing this sermon. One negative and one positive. Uh, As some of you know, I work for a local charity called Good Company, which runs a network of local food banks, And a few weeks ago, I was talking to one of our clients, an older woman who'd recently lost her husband after 40 years of marriage. She was struggling financially because shortly after her husband died, the landlord of the home she had lived in for 20 years decided to put up the rent by £600 a month, an increase of nearly 50%, and that is why she had started coming to the food bank. When I asked her how he could do such a thing, she said that her landlord had told her that he was increasing the rent in line with the market rate. It later came out in the conversation that the landlord was a church leader. I don't know his situation and I haven't heard his side of the story, of course, but I don't think it was a fantastic witness to this woman and her wider family As Christians, I don't believe we should simply follow the market or other societal norms if this is causing serious harm to others. Another example, this time a story of a talented 16-year-old runner from Devon called Innes Fitzgerald. The reason she was in the news is that she had just turned down an invitation to compete at the World Athletics Championships in Australia because of her concern about the environmental impact of flying. This is what she said. I was just nine when the COP21 Paris Climate Agreement was signed. Now, eight years on, and global emissions have been steadily increasing. Turn with and personal action. I would never feel comfortable flying in the knowledge that people could be losing their livelihoods, homes, and loved ones as a result. The least I can do is voice my solidarity with those suffering on the front line of climate breakdown. I was really impressed by this young woman's stand for climate justice even though it meant giving up the opportunity of a lifetime with potentially long-term consequences for her athletic career. How about us? Are we prepared to make sacrifices in how we live our lives in how we use our time, our energy, and our money? Are we prepared to live counterculturally, as Rosemary talked about last week, living holy lives that do not blindly follow the social norms and values of the society in which we live, where these run counter to God's ways? This doesn't simply apply to our personal morality. We also need to be countercultural in refusing to get drawn in to unjust structures and practices within our society that directly or indirectly cause harm to others and to God's creation. Because by doing so, we are pointing towards the final day of the Lord when all evil and injustice will be wiped off the face of the earth. So, in summary, the day of the Lord points to the climax of God's ultimate plan for the world when death is defeated and we will be raised with Christ to live with him forever. We do not need to fear death. But the day of the Lord is even bigger than this, for God promises to redeem the whole of creation, putting an end to evil and corrupt empires, systems and practices that blight our world so that we can live in right relationship with each other and with God. And finally, a more complete understanding of the day of the Lord deepens our understanding of what it means to live holy lives that are pleasing to God, refusing to be caught up in unjust systems that harm others and the environment. So as we wait for the band to come up and as we sing the next song, I invite you to use this time to let God minister to you by his Holy Spirit. If you have a fear of death, ask him to take that away and to seal in you the promise of eternal life with God. If, like me, you're weary of hearing bad news and depressed about the state of the world, then ask him to give you hope as we look forward to the coming of his kingdom when everything that is wrong with our world will be put right. And if you long to live a holy life that pleases God, then ask him to show you what you can do in your everyday life to play your part in tackling injustice and creating a fairer world. Amen.